0: Okay, well I'm going to stand. Um, while this thing warms up, I just uh, wanted to confront a little bit um, Tim's comments about what was important here, um, whether, whether it was uh, uh, a subprime crisis or a, a financial crisis that we were talking about. I think it's a bit of a non-debate really. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of reminded of Bruno Latour's remark about, you know, the giant in the story is not necessarily a bigger character than the dwarf. Um, what I would say, however, is that um, <laughs> what I would say is that um, for me, subprime is certainly not just about a stream of financial flows. Um, it's about a, a lot more than that, um, for reasons that hopefully, if this ever comes on, I'm going to talk about. Okay, well I'll continue, and if it comes up, I'll uh, I'll flick it over. Um, title for my paper is "When Credit Becomes Debt." foreclosure and forbearance in subprime mortgages. Ah. Right, here we go. It was there all along. Okay. What I'm going to focus upon really is um, a process whereby mortgages become categorised in certain ways once they become debtors. So in the US if you fail to meet a monthly repayment on your mortgage you become categorised as delinquent. If, you miss, uh, if you're 90 days late, in other words if you miss three mortgage repayments you become in default and therefore you can expect to be punished by foreclosure shortly thereafter. Foreclosure being a legal process uh, through which lenders establish their right to sell or to repossess ownership of the property which secures a mortgage. And the paper starts um, with a survey from the Mortgage Bankers Association, Uh, it's their National Delinquency Survey, Um, this was from June 2008, Um, and that finds that 1 in 11 mortgages in the United States are currently categorised as either delinquent, in default, or in foreclosure, 1 in 11. Okay. Now beneath these aggregate figures, the survey includes measures by loan type, product type, and by state. As might be expected, these measures show that rates of delinquency, and especially default and foreclosure, are much higher in the subprime market and for those mortgages who have adjustable rate mortgages or arms. Furthermore, one third of all mortgages presently in default default or foreclosure are concentrated in California and in Florida, states where subprime mortgage networks are most developed, and states where um, house prices have fallen most sharply from their peak of April 2007. So what we get then is a picture of um, while one in around about 450 mortgages nationally are currently being punished through foreclosure, that ratio rises to around one in 25 in certain hot spots or black spots such as Stockton in California. So these repayment problems um, and in particular projections of future repayment problems, particularly foreclosure rates, have led to um, a range of initiatives by the Federal Government in support of forbearance. Forbearance implies tolerance, moderation, leniency by lenders. (coughs) It can take many forms, but usually refers to a set of arrangements negotiated on an individual basis to reschedule and to modify a debtor's outstanding obligations. State support for forbearance, then, is far from the norm. Yet state support for forbearance has become uh, a key plank in the so-called Paulson Plan. That's the response of the federal government to the subprime crisis that's been primarily authored by Treasury Secretary Henry or Hank Paulson. Uh, He's pictured here, not surprisingly, looking knackered by his efforts. (laughs) (coughs) Paulson took the lead in um, basically three sets of initiatives. The first was FHA Secure, this is from August 2007. FHA Secure um, transforms the underwriting standards of the Federal Housing Author- Association. FHA Secure makes it possible um, for the FHA to ensure new mortgages of delinquent borrowers for the first time. Now, previously, the FHA could insure all sorts of borrowers, right? but they had to be current with their payments. <coughs> Under this, basically, the FHA becomes a vehicle through which to support forbearance. To qualify for an FHA secure um, insurance, the individual debtor has to negotiate forbearance with their lender and move from an adjustable rate mortgage product to a 30-year fixed rate mortgage product. And The FHA claimed that it had insured 200,000 mortgages um, that were refinanced from arms to 30-year, 30-year fixed rate products between 2007. September 2007 and May 2008. Okay, So this is a programme that's in action. Uh, Paulson Paulson also took the lead in the formation of the Hope Now Alliance. This is an alliance of... uh, a great name. Um, This is an alliance of lenders, um, services in particular, all sorts of primary and secondary uh, mortgage market institutions, trying to put together what they call a coordinated plan of action. Interestingly, uh, their focus has been on on forbearance. Um, They released some figures in February 2008 that said that the 26 mortgage services, who are Alliance members, and who are responsible for collecting the repayments of 90% of subprime loans outstanding, had engaged in forbearance with over half a million um, subprime mortgages during the second half of 2007. So again, this is something um, that's the initiative that's been carried forward. And the third and perhaps most um, high-profile aspect of the Paulson Plan in this regard is the American Housing Rescue and Foreclosure Prevention Act, of very recently, July 2008. Um, This is particularly high-profile and notable for creating the financial package that has subsequently been used um, to bail out uh, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. But from uh, the point of view of my paper, what I'm interested in is the way in which the Act grants authority to the FHA to ensure um, up to 300 billion worth of refinanced mortgages, and thereby provides this otherwise self-financed institution with a very huge public subsidy. Okay. So the paper then um, is concerned to try and offer some kind of critical understanding of these programmes and legislation, and more broadly to interrogate foreclosure and forbearance. Um, I was tempted in initially trying to write, the, in initially sort of thinking about this, to try and um, relate these uh, programmes and legislation um, to the production and reproduction of owner occupation in the United States. Um, owner occupation is a form of housing tenure. Now programmes that seek to extend um, the mortgage markets at the margins and which step in or intervene in times of crisis are a well-established feature of um, state support for the for housing and mortgage markets and arguably of Liberal government of housing in the United States. In the paper, however, I want to try and focus upon the questions that are raised by this um, for the government and politics of mass market credit debt. Why is this? Why, 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 why is it that, that interests me? Well, um, I think that... When you place this in the context of, uh, or against the backdrop of the long and recent history of popular credit and debt, federal government support for forbearance is quite remarkable. The primary responsibility for the reproduction of credit relations, always and everywhere, is the responsibility of the borrower, not the lender, is deeply ingrained in economy and society. Indeed, the ways in which such unequal relations are central to the power, privilege and profits of lenders has long been contested throughout the history of credit and debt. So although today's um, subprime debtors in the US are not punished through incarceration, the debtors' prisons and so on, the representation of the debtor as a guilty party who can and should expect to have their freedom curtailed is nonetheless continues to be foundational to credit debt relations. Until the current crisis in subprime mortgage networks, a moment when credit has become debt on such a huge scale, the norm that responsibility for the upkeep of of credit relations should lay largely and almost solely with with the borrower has not been seriously shaken in the mass market. Yet it would seem now that there is a willingness to suspend the norms and legal processes that would otherwise foreclose and punish on debtors. Forbearance implies leniency, Empathy and even egalitarianism, and thereby signals something of a, a co responsibility between lender and borrower in credit relations. Indeed, federal government support for forbearance would seem to indicate social and collective responsibility for credit relations. Okay, how am I doing the time? Right? Um, I think you've been going exactly 10 minutes. So okay. i Excellent. The argument that I put forward in the paper moves through three steps, and I try and develop each of them in turn. The first thing I'm trying to do is to try and think about this foreclosure and the place of foreclosure within the government of credit debt, particularly in a mass market where the paper argues that um, the responsibility of borrowers for outstanding credit and debt obligations has become entrenched in novel ways. So what I argue is that the um, legal processes of of, of punishment, represented here on this slide by an image of a a debtor's prison, have become intertwined in a mass market with the extra legal. What what am I talking about when I'm talking about the extra legal? Well, I'm talking primarily about the rise of credit scoring as a disciplinary mechanism the rise of companies such as Experian, TransUnion, and Equifax. Why are these important? Well, I think to illustrate, it, it's worth noting the ways in which credit scoring ensures that a delinquent mortgager is punished even before he may move, or he or she, or both, may move into default or into foreclosure. Okay. So if I miss a mortgage repayment, I'm reported to the credit scoring agency. My credit score worsens, therefore. I'm punished through higher interest rates on unsecured credit, my access to unsecured credit may dry up. But this isn't just about the discipline and punishment through legal mechanisms or through credit scoring. The paper argues that um, the government of mass market credit debt um, also features the summoning up of um, a particular subject position, um, a particular figure. Particularly entrepreneurial and self-disciplinary figure. um, Borrower subjects who not only meet their outstanding obligations in a responsible manner, but also entrepreneurially manage and manipulate those obligations to maximise their freedom and security. So that's the first part of the paper. The second part of the paper, which I'm going to skip over quickly because I'm running out of time, um, is to ask, well, what does this reading of the of the government of the mass market, credit and debt, what does it mean? for how we might think about subprime and in particular the subprime crisis. The paper argues that the the, um, established representation of subprime as anomalous unregulated predatory financial realm is challenged once we understand um, the government of mass market credit debt in the way that the paper sits out. Indeed I argue that the main features of um, the government of mass market credit debt have been central to legitimating and to making possible the subprime, subprime sector. And um, the paper traces that through uh, by looking at the arrears management of services, by looking at the role of credit scoring and risk based pricing, but also looking at the way in which adjustable rate mortgages um, summon up leveraged investors in, in George Bush's ownership society. What well, I want to spend a little bit more time in the time I've got left talking about is the third step that the paper takes where I'm trying to interrogate the politics of forbearance. What is this about? Now, It's certainly the case that federal support for forbearance can be understood as gaining ground because the government of the mass market credit debt has been found seriously wanting. To a large extent, the representation of subprime borrowers as victims of predatory lending, and federal support for forbearance that follows from that is an acknowledgement of regulatory failure. It's also the case that forbearance is necessary I'm not saying that it's not, in order to prevent large numbers of subprime borrowers from losing their homes. However, what is much less certain is the extent to which forbearance suspends the norm of foreclose and punish, and thereby opens up political space for disagreement over who should be responsible for the reproduction of credit relations, should this just be about solely about borrower responsibility. To this end, the paper includes some analysis of activist groups that have campaigned for forbearance. We've seen calls for forbearance on what are called um, foreclosure moratoriums by the likes of the Americans for fairness in lending and the uh, California Reinvestment Coalition. These are the two groups that you can see um, protesting here on the slide. Um, their calls are underpinned by the view that lenders should be responsible, okay, not only for the point, at the point at which credit is sold, but for the life of credit relations that said their initiatives and campaigns on forbearance may actually close down may actually close down the political possibilities for co-responsibility between lenders and borrowers in credit relations the norm of borrower responsibility for outstanding credit debt is at once challenged by forbearance and reinforced the paper argues specifically that the politics of forbearance can be seen to further the legal, calculative, and self-disciplinary forces of the government of mass market credit debt. So to try and take each of these in turn. It's important to recognize that from the outset, concerns to promote forbearance typically reduce political questions over who should be responsible to a set of legal questions. Particularly over which debtors should be singled out for punishment, right? and which debtors should be included within any any, um, forbearance rights. In particular, this this legal move reduces this to a question of rights. So, for example, legal activists and critical legal scholars are currently campaigning for a national foreclosure bill. At present, foreclosure is something that's undertaken at the local level. What they'd like to see is a uniform procedure in every state some of them <laughs> quite i think are quite ironically recommend that because of this patchwork of uncertainty across state legislatures if you find yourself in a situation of foreclosure what you should do is you should liberate yourself by declaring yourself bankrupt right. bankruptcy has a federal is, is, is it takes place within a federal framework and there are certain provisions that prevent that, that give you the opportunity a last gasp attempt to save your home but again, here, this political question is being reduced to a set of legal questions. Not dissimilarly, political attempts to forge co-responsibility between lender and borrower in debt workout are also abridged as attention comes to focus on calculative measures to determine who is eligible, right? Inclusion and exclusion in forbearance. So, for example, um, there's been a lot of critical energy uh, by activists in the States um, devoted to challenging the limitations of FHA Secure. These limitations arise out of the particular underwriting criteria that are used and interestingly the risk-based pricing that the FHA themselves use. Finally, the politics of forbearance um, I think necessarily produces a temporary and exceptional suspension of the norm that borrowers should be responsible. Once that act of forbearance takes place, we once again return to a situation where the borrower is reassembled as responsible and self-disciplinary subject. Even in what are apparently the most radical calls for forbearance, uh, calls for foreclosure moratoriums and such like, those are time limited. There's a sort of sense in which, well, you know, this is okay, we'll put this in place for one or two years. Once it's sorted, we can return to normal. Even with federal support and legislation in some states, most notably in California, lenders and services continue in large part to retain discretion over the form that forbearance takes and once negotiated responsibility for keeping up repayments, falls squarely once again on the shoulders of the borrower. So, to try and um, succinctly summarize, I think uh, forbearance initiatives are as much a continuation yeah. in the government of mass market credit debt as they are an exceptional moment that troubles the operation of power.
1: Thanks very much Paul. Um. <laughs> and to Graham. Right, five minutes on each paper. I haven't had the chance to read his paper, but I have some comments that have sort of obliquely kind of touch on it. And, but I'll do those in the kind of second part and that's about Know, the nature of kind of crises and what you know how one kind of thinks about the next one, because you're quite right, there will be a next one, and we need to kind of think a little bit about that i think um, but I'll say first of all about uh, Paul's paper, which I have nothing but admiration for. There several things going on here uh, there are several levels in which you can read the paper, but I want to concentrate from posi- from the point of view of my r- remarks on the question of forbearance and particularly how you discuss the operationalization of forbearance. I think this has got some kind of general implications. The period of forbearance, I mean, it's a kind of truce, really. No party is quite satisfied with the outcome, but satisfied enough to let things rest in a way for a while. It's sort a breathing space, and therefore it's kind of a very (coughs) interesting period, I think. And you link it uh, quite interestingly to part of the way in which self responsibility, the self kind of responsabilization of agents is being operationalized, how self governance and self discipline is being kind of organized. And there's a hell of a lot of that about, I think, in this area and a number of other areas. And that raises, that, that invokes certain types of new subjectivities. New subjectivities are produced. This is the kind of manner in which you discuss this and appropriately. And it shows that. And what I think your paper interestingly shows is that these new types of subjectivity cannot just be sort of unproblematically called forth, (coughs) they have to be produced, and it's a highly complex task, uh, a real labour to produce these new subjectivities involving a myriad of new institutions you discuss these new rules new laws kind of new sets of negotiations so it's fraught with difficulties and setbacks and unforeseen consequences and i want to take this up in a minute uh uh, later on in the in my my comments on them on the other paper. And it's part, in in part, so the paper, I think, very interestingly sort of demonstrates the difficulties and the kind of the real labor there is in trying to do this. And it's part part of the paper also demonstrates the limits of this as a governmental strategy. Um, It is always pregnant with failure because of the inability of the distressed mortgagees to keep up with their renegotiated payments terms. The sheer numbers, and we shall see more of these coming onto the books now, of course, the sheer numbers who might be involved uh, problematical of ensuring uh, for these, and I think it's kind of demonstrates, as you say, the discrete time period for the suspension of the norm. It's based on a, what I would call, related to your politics, a politics of hope. Let's let's hope that in this intervening period, as it were, something will kind of emerge. Um, uh, and now, so I think I would just make a few more comments in a moment about the alternative to the politics of hope here, which is a little bit more unpleasant. Um, I think this paper also demonstrates then that any kind of financial innovation and here I I kind of learn a little bit from from tomorrow's paper by by Julie and her her co-authors. Financial innovation also brings with it the need for managerial innovation and regulatory innovation. It's It's not just financial innovation, they're paralleled by the need for managerial innovation and regulatory innovation, and I think you demonstrate this. So what is described here operates between, I think, this politics of hope and a politics of abandonment, the foreclosure option the politics of hope uh, forbearance seems to be a worthy one to me and it's some something that is um, that is you know kind of worth I think us kind of trying to think about this politics of hope and forbearance because the alternative the pro, the, the the politics of abandonment which is also very is hey look we can't do anything about it as authorities I'm afraid you are going to have to sort that out yourself that's what I mean by the politics of abandonment. you abandon people to sort it out indeed you uh, you you, you deliberately self-empower, in quotes, those people to sort it out themselves. And that politics of abandonment, I think, is very prevalent. And I think there's those interesting issues that you raise here around that. Now, I think the other uh, uh, issue um, uh, that that is hovering around in this paper and others is what I call a big structural issue and this is the difficulty of conceiving of the housing market more generally operate, operate, operating without any huge public subsidies. Any huge public subsidies. Is this possible, and what would it entail? Because it seems to me that behind this lies actually the what uh, uh, Len calls a kind of housing as part of welfare provision that housing has always been subsidised, and what you get is, you know, for the middle classes, right the way through to, the, uh, to working classes, as it were, and um, it's a form of welfare provision. Um, periods of quiet claims uh, to subsidies, but also periods of very noisy claims to subsidies, but subsidies nevertheless, and we're going through a period of very noisy claims to subsidies now. But behind this is this problem about housing seems to be necessarily subsidised. That's my comments on the paper. Now, the second paper I want to comment on in terms of this question of, um, you know, the, the cycle, the cycle, the, 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 the what you might call kind of my, my point about déjà vu or déjà lu, the cycle of enthusiasm, crises and disappointments. To use another Williams et al. Sort what of. is this word, lu? Louis, déjà lu. You know, I've heard it all before. I've heard Not just, I've kind of got a sense of it, you know, here. Déjà vu, mm-hmm. but i uh, uh, heard it all before. Um, Frenchman <laughs> may have an objection. All oh right, well, uh, you know, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what does it mean? Uh, I'm sorry, I'm, French. I'm a Frenchman. I have to intervene here. Déjà vu is I've read it all I read it, excuse me. Okay, well, I've read it already. Now, um, the, the nature of these crises, I mean, I was uh, at this uh, meeting previously on a previous round of kind of discussion about the crisis and what should be done about it, and it struck me here, and I make this point to the distinguished panel, uh, more distinguished, I might add, other than my uh, person immediately on my left, um, uh, uh, more distinguished panels of this, of sort of central bankers, some central bankers, and regulators, senior regulators. Right, the, the, the financial system. Seems to be subject to this cycle. First of all, you have lots of innovation, financial innovation. There's a disquiet. There's warnings about this about its possible consequences. Kind of nothing is done too much about those warnings. The crisis hits immediately. Panic, firefighting, lots lot of wringing of hands, uh, etc. Which is what we're going through now. There's a third phase. Why did it happen? The postmortem, the diagnostic phase, debate and disagreement about this, which is inevitable. Um, meanwhile, the fourth phase, phase—the uh, uh, gradually the authorities constitute various forums for inquiry and analysis of what should be done to prevent another such crisis of this kind. That go- This uh, goes on for a long time since there's inevitably disagreement about all of this and getting a consensus politically is very difficult. Eventually... Fifth phase, a sort of agreement is reached. It's never quite as much as everybody wanted. It's always a kind of, you know, watered-down version, and it always promises the next time it'll be different. The next time it'll be different, it promises this. Meanwhile, meanwhile, of course, the financial innovation is going on, and it's all the time, any all the time during the period of the agreement on the past, the past crisis is going on, and th- what is produced in terms of regulatory initiatives now seems a bit unnecessary. Hey, you know, that, that was, that's, that's a, yesterday's problem because this innovation has produced a new problem. And hey, we, we need to, you know, when the crisis hits again, everybody's unprepared for it. I'm going to give out a little uh, uh, handout. I only prepared uh, mm-hmm. 20 of these because I didn't realise there would be quite such a number of people here. But you'll have to look at this. There's one for the uh, members of the panel that relates to something else I've. So if, uh, can you perhaps uh, distribute these um, around to, you know, to one or two of you? Um, okay. So what does one do then in a response to this? The fact that there will be another crisis, and if I can find my pieces of paper, I would be hopeful. Um... What I want to ask, where am I? Okay. No, I'm not okay. Well, perhaps I can ask this more generally. Uh, um, two things, and when I kind of made this point to this panel, um, they said, you know, so we know. well, what do we do? How do we break this cycle? And the, the, the panelist basically said, that's an existential question, because you can't break the cycle. That's an existential question. And they mumbled. To be honest, they mumbled some responses because now I think we should actually take this question of, you know, if if this is an existential question, we should provide a sort of existential answer. Now, one of my answers is based on this, and it's the question, quite honestly, whether this is a global crisis. And my kind of, you know, handout indicates that first of all, this is really a North Atlantic issue. Uh, that's first indicated by, if you look at the kind of list of, of banks and how much they've lost, and that's the only until August, there's more. But you know, it's all, it's very much a North Atlantic issue, very little spillover to the other parts of the world. Yes. And this, yes. well, yet or whatever, but my, my, uh, my uh, uh, diagrams, I think, one is for 2006 and the others are for 1999 and 2001, uh, indicate that actually the, f- the, the global capital flows are not that global. Actually, they are. They are. If you were to add up Europe there, the wider Europe, the bigger Europe, that's in the UK as well as Eastern Europe and so on, you'd find that 80% of the activity, both of the c- d- domestic uh, 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 credit uh, uh, shown here, and, um, and of flows is between the US and Europe, the, the, the greater Europe.
0: 80%.
1: So what we've got to think about, I think, is kind of, you know, is, is not a global response, but actually something else. Uh, and I would actually kind of argue, and I do in the kind of third edition of my book, you know, uh, for a kind of much more uh, differentiated and what you might call super-regional kind of, you know, approach to this, to, to uh, thinking about regulatory structures. Not global, but supranationally regional because actually, and this is demonstrated exactly by these, uh, it isn't quite demonstrated by these, um, diagrams which are about the financial system, but in the kinds of the real economy, such that we can talk about that anymore, it's very much supranationally, regionally organized, and increasingly so, actually. So it's not global, and that requires us to imaginatively think quite differently about the kind of regional, the kind of financial global architecture that you might um, think about installing. And the second uh, uh, point about this is that this is an existential question about can, you kind of, you know, can we stop this cycle? and you can't if it's but if it's non-calculative it's not foreseen it's not rational what sort of what sort of ways do you think about this if it is existential you've got to you've got to always expect uh, the unexpected the unforeseen consequences the unpredictability and it's an eruption and this actually requires a, quite a different kind of way of approaching these things, which I think is to think of a flexible uh, system, very flexible regulatory system, prepared for improvisation, uh, for imaginative thinking on the hoof. And one's got to actually not, as it were, institute yet another sort of large kind of body of of, of kind of norms and kind of regulatory rules, if, if this is the nature of the kind of financial system that we're faced with. Great.